0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me is Chris KP. Good morning, buddy.
1: Aloha. How are you? This I think day? this
0: is two weeks in a row that we have been doing the show solo. People will talk. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> <laughs> and not just me. Uh, look, it's good. Uh, it's good to see you again. Um, we uh, have a, a normal crew seems to be off doing other things at the moment. So one of the things about having co-hosts, the mm, are, mm. are scientists, that every now and then and have lives. <laughs> there's a junket. I mean, a conference. Uh, <laughs> a conference that they're off doing, and um, hence our. Away, oh, good luck! To which them. is a uh, good bit. I'm pretty excited today. We have two amazing guests, mm. uh, and the first one is already in the studio with us, so she's probably blushing as I, I say those words. But uh, Professor <laughs> Megan Miller from the Research School of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University in Canberra, no less, has come all the way down just to see us. Chris, good morning. Good morning. It is great to have you in the studio, Megan. We we were doing some work together some time ago and interacted. In a a different world. Um, And we were just chatting beforehand, because you're you're a geophysicist, right? That's right. And you and I may have overlapped briefly when we were doing our training at Melbourne Uni. Is that?
2: I think that's the case. We're
0: going to narrow this down. Was that uh, between the years of 90 and 97?
2: correct?
1: <laughs> okay. You, that's a wide range. You're trying not to sound at all. Is that what's happening? What bothers me
0: is that I may have been giving first-year lectures and maybe mm. Megan was in there. That's where I'm assuming happened. But um, okay.
2: I'm not sure, but yes, that timeline. I was there as an undergrad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> do you remember the shirts I used to wear? I got a lot of flack over those shirts. No.
2: Yeah, well, well
0: anyway, it's good to know. <laughs> uh, now, you, you work in an area that we, we don't get to talk about this very often on the show, and I think it's a favourite for a lot of our listeners, but it's Basically, everything to do with tectonic plate boundaries, volcanoes, earthquakes, lines of beds, tigers. I might. It's great stuff. Um, first of all, give us a bit of an idea. What, what's your sort of core work at the moment in in this this sort of field? Like, whether are you are you focusing on volcanoes, on earthquakes, or everything in the world?
2: So, I kind of am doing three different things, I guess. Um, and so, most of my core research work over the past. Uh, 15 years or so has been looking at plate boundaries, which you just mentioned. So where yep. two plates come together. Um, and I generally have been focusing at, su- at subduction zones. So that's where one plate goes beneath the other and you get lots of uh, volcanoes, lots of earthquakes. So Indonesia, Japan, the Andes, all of those places um, and also um, New Zealand. Um, so that's one area of research. And what I generally do is I'm an observational seismologist. So I put out seismometers in usually remote locations and then uh, collect data there for a couple of years and then do seismic imaging. Um, So that's the one Area of research. The other is looking at stable continents, so in the middle of a tectonic plate, like Australia, a continent, yep. and trying to understand the structure of how um, of how they've been built long, long ago. And so they hold a record of how they were formed. And often, um, you can link the two between subduction zones and. Uh, and stable continental interiors.
0: Oh, very cool stuff. Yep. So now let's start there. I want to start sure. with the um, the stable Australia part because okay. I heard recently. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm a physics guy, not a geophysics guy. Okay. So you know, we know very little about this stuff. That. Because the continent we're on was made up of many little pieces early on, there are still some sort of fractures or or sort of old fault lines that exist, you know, under Australia or essentially where we are, and hence that's why we get some of the earthquakes still that we do. Is that right?
2: Um, So there's suture zones. So these are kind of places where um, different um, the building blocks or or crustal blocks have been put together um, So over time. So whether when you have a subduction zone, you can get little... Um, different parts of rock material that come together and that can build and form the continents and so we do have relics of those um, in Australia and the the two-thirds, western two-thirds of the continent are much, much older, so billions okay. of years old um, compared to the east coast of Australia and or the one-third of it um, and that's much younger but they have some similarities of how they are formed over the years but the oldest rocks are in the west so some, they're right. four billion years old so, so really, 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 really old.
0: It's all, all old as the Earth, right? Mm. What is that, 4.5, 4.6? 4. Yeah, 4.6. 4.6, yeah. yeah. So, and how do you, like, how do you know that? How do you, like, how do you actually determine that that side is older than the other side? Is yes. it just rocks that are being...
2: Yeah, so you can yep. you can uh, yeah you can date the rocks. So that's yep. outside of my field, but you can um, you can actually um, use chemistry and isotopes to um, understand the age of them. And so that's you look at those um, rocks and minerals, and you can uh, establish from zircon minerals is usually the, right. the one that's uh, most commonly used um, to date these very very old rocks in Western Australia. There's also very old ones in Greenland and and in right. um, and in Canada as well.
0: Yeah, I find it amazing. Sometimes we've had a couple of people over the years talk about that and say you know they've. Found this rock that's 4 billion years old, and I'm thinking, is it on your desk? Hmm. Where is it? You know, like what what do you do with a rock like that? And are they few and far between? I mean, so what I wondered is like they'll talk about one rock but you know there's so much stuff there like is there huge amounts of this and we're just dating one little piece or is it just one bit that we managed to identify
2: um so there you, field geologists go out into the field and they map these rocks and um, and then they take samples and bring yep. them bring them back and then they usually crush them up and then grab out these little minerals to then to yeah. then to then date but um yeah I mean there's there's not a lot of it, as you can imagine, because, mm. um, because of plate tectonics. And so most of those old rocks get recycled into the deep earth, and that's part of the subduction zone process, right. and that's what I study.
1: Yeah, yep. cool stuff. So you study both ends of this. There's the old stuff that used to be subducted, if you like, yeah. and new stuff that is subducting Correct. and is yet to become old, if that makes sense. Which comes first? Do you do you uh, do you sort of get a greater understanding looking at stuff that's old and been sitting around, or is it more is it more the other way around you go to the new stuff and go I know what's going to happen here? Where, where do you focus?
2: Um, yeah, so that's a good question. So I think you can look at it from either either direction. Um, and so for seismic imaging, which is what I do, I'm getting a picture of what's happening currently, and then we can try to infer what has happened in the past. But there's mm. um, it's still open ended question of how long plate, plate tectonics has actually been going on. Has it actually been in existence for the full three point five four billion years. Now, hang on.
1: So that's interesting because the assumption I remember, I remember being in, I think I was in first year and ha- having a lecture, we go through a whole tectonic plate thing. And then at the very last lecture, say, of course, it's just a theory. We're not really sure if it even happened and to what extent it happened. I remember being shocked by that because I really got it. And I'm like, hang on, you mean to tell me it might not be true, but you're saying that it's true, but we don't know that it's, I always assumed that it was just always a thing.
2: Yeah. So when plate tectonics starts is a big question Mm -hmm. in my field, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it's certainly plate tectonics. Is happening. It's that's well, not that's not under that's yeah, not a question anymore. Okay. So don't worry, you did get it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. That's a relief. So, hang, so, so, what's the window then? What's the window of you know? of I mean, there's an argument, I guess, but what's the window of when it's, it may have started through to you know when else it may have started? What's the the acceptables are it's
2: billions of years, right? So right, okay. it's still like, um, you know, did it start at 3.5 billion years or or but two that's billion still significant years again? Because yeah. if,
1: if you're saying that it's 4.6 billion years old, you're saying that it may have done nothing for a quarter of its life. Just set reasonably stable, or at least not moving. Moving, you know.
2: Yeah, on, not because it was actually accreting and then solidifying, yeah, yeah. and so um, that's you know one of the other things it's, mm. It takes some time for it for you know a planetary body to actually um, cool down enough and then have mm. be able to have plate tectonics um, in existence on the surface, and so that, that's another planetary. Um, Studies so whether there is plate tectonics on other other planets as well is also Ooh, also a question. Yeah, that's wild stuff.
0: Because at the, and at the moment we're getting all this data from the Insight mission that's right. that NASA put on Mars, yeah. and I'm not sure if people are aware of this, but the um, there's a big dust storm going on as often happens on Mars, and so its um, solar energy power conversion levels are dropping like a stone, and so it's been measuring Mars quakes for for quite a while now and connecting those with I think the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. In orbit, if that wasn't clear. Um, in orbit. <laughs> and, um, and they put those two together and they can work out what's happening in terms of Mars' geology. But it's very different to Earth's, isn't it? It's yeah, very... it's
2: very different. And it's um, you know, it's really interesting because, of course, there's only one seismometer, right? So yeah. sent, yeah. sent one. And so it's um, using techniques that were you know in use here on yep. Earth a hundred years ago when there were a very limited number of, yeah, yeah. of seismometers, but you can still do fantastic things like finding what, what, the different layers are in the Martian interior and recording these Martian earthquakes and, and trying to figure out how deep they are. That's also an important question. Yeah.
0: All right. So we've got to get to the, the, the imaging part yeah. mm-hmm. um, because that's, that's the exciting stuff. But first of all, the, the size seismometers, I mean, this is where you and I sort of first started interacting. Um, the, the old version people have all seen the little needle on the paper mm-hmm. job, right. I'm not exactly sure that's how right. they work, but yeah. um, are they, it's are they very sim- simple
2: actually the, <laughs> the ground moves and it draws just <laughs> it's like an etch-a-sketch,
0: so, yeah. um, A etch-a-sketch. <laughs> um, are they still predominantly the the ones out there
2: yes absolutely so wow. that they're um but now we have three components so you can right. record up and down and east and west and north and south so that's oh, that's right. that's what has uh you know is the established one that we have yeah but they take up quite a bit of effort to go and install Um, and so there we run 50 um seismometers and seismometers in schools program here in australia and they're used as part of um uh, monitoring and imaging and everything else Uh, geoscience australia also has another um, similar number that they run as a permanent network and then What I do and what many of my colleagues do is go out and put out seismometers in strategic locations. Right, okay. Um, And so you have to dig a a hole and you you leave them there. They're solar powered with a battery and then you come back every six months, collect the data, and then after a couple of years you take them out and then you move them somewhere else. Amazing.
0: I remember hearing a few years back people, I think it was in California, California were trying to access Apple's location data to see if they could distribute an app to 5,000 people to see if they could use individuals' As essentially that same sort of early detection system. Yep. I'm not sure if that went off. It did. Yeah. So it
2: has has gone ahead, and um, yeah. So all of our phones have accelerometers in yeah. it. So That's another. It's similar sort of sensor that records ground motion, and so yeah, you can we can do that. So crowdsourcing um, public science. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, so there's all these old ones out there. I love the fact they're still using the pen, whatever yep. it is. That's yes. <laughs> great. It looks great. You know, at least we don't. Exactly. About.
2: Everyone always asks Everyone. for those images and it's yeah. like, you were digging them up from 40 years ago <laughs> because they don't actually work like
0: that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's, and there's these old guys in lab coats standing, literally <laughs> yeah, guys in a, lab coats standing in front right. of them. They're the ones that they use on the news. That's great. Um, hmm. But you're working on some very new uh, sort of methodologies around this um, using what are called dark optical fibers. T- tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So, um, this is just distributed acoustic sensing, or DAS. Um, and so this is a new technology um, and so t- that uses existing fiber optic cables. so where you get internet telecom, mm-hmm. um, use those cables as sensors. And how that works is that you shoot a laser down the fiber optic cable and mm-hmm. then you get measurements all along that cable for ten, tens of kilometers so using existing infrastructure that's in the ground um, hook up this laser to it and then when a seismic wave goes by or a car goes by and you get ground motion, you're recording um, recording that as individual sensors about every medi- meter spacing along the entire length of wow. the cable. so you don't have to go out, and put out these uh, size polymers, but the the catch is it's only in one component, right? So yeah. it's only along, along the, the line, along yeah. the line.
0: So now, as someone who did a PhD in fire optics, so I'm yes. going to ask you. I know. A, a <laughs> I was approach. waiting for this. <laughs> well, don't uh, right, worry, I'll be kind. But um, the so the interesting thing is, of course, is that for telecommunications purposes, these fibers need to be well insulated, and need to not be too affected by the things around them. Otherwise, our ability to send signals, you know, across the world and so forth would would be problematic. Every time a whale went by, you know, <laughs> um, so. In this case, I mean, this must require some very sophisticated data analysis to get that signal out. Like, that's not the dominant signal that goes down the fiber.
2: Um, it is the dominant. signal, oh, actually. Yeah, actually wow. So we're using the dark, the dark cable. Oh, so not. They're the, completely not. They're, used not, at all. they're okay. not used. Yeah, so the yeah. technology is, um, is based upon the ones that are not being used. So they're yeah. not actually c- um, carrying the internet on them. Um, but yeah, they're very. It's they're actually quite sensitive, right? So I did an experiment mm. here in Melbourne a couple of months ago, and. Um, uh, I know where the cables are, and so I jump up and down on the on the corner, <laughs> yeah. or use a sledgehammer, and and I can see it. So, so, so that
0: was you on the corner of Flinders and, that's right. and Swanson, just jumping up and down, yeah, uh, for no reason, and people, yeah, okay, yeah, that's uh, it's interesting stuff. And so, in terms of, like you mentioned that you can, so you can, how like closely to a location can you determine where this external seismic signal is coming from?
2: Um. Yeah, so if it's, a, we can detect very distant earthquakes. So, say mm-hmm. there's an earthquake in Indonesia, yep. and you can, we, we record it here in wow. Melbourne on the fibers. Um, or if there's um, you know, the earthquake that occurred in September 2021, that would have been recorded. We recorded a couple of uh, local ones, one in the Adelaide Hills and one that's about 120 kilometres close to, to Mansfield yeah, as well, so yeah. we can see relatively local earthquakes, but also distance ones.
0: Wow, it's cool stuff. All right, now, uh, we're going to take a short break, so give people a, a moment to grab a, a cup of coffee or tea, and you're going to stick around?
3: Yes, Because uh,
0: we're going to go on to this imaging of the earth. I love, I love that stuff. Mm. It's wild.
3: Triple R.
0: Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. We have Professor Megan Miller from the Australian National University, who is a geophysicist in the studio with us. And we've just been exploring earthquakes and seismology equipment including the old pin-operated ones, which apparently still stay the art, but uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Now, so with these optical fibres, I mean, you mentioned you could detect things as far away as like Indonesia and so forth. I mean, these these vibrations in the optical fibre sort of re- around the fibres and so forth must be what? Um, microns. Microns. Yeah. Microns
2: So really, really small um, and yeah, we obviously don't feel them at all, but yep. we can detect them on both traditional seismometers and uh, as well as uh as DAS. Yep.
0: Yeah. Now the five dollar question, I was gonna say million dollars, it's more like a five dollar question is <sighs> yeah. how do you know it's an earthquake in Indonesia and not Chris backing yeah. out of his drive poorly?
2: Yeah, <laughs> so that's a good thing because we have to figure out what is noise yep. and what is what mm. is signal. Um but yeah. Usually we, we remove the noise um, and so you denoise the signal and you can see mm-hmm. um, see the, the actual earthquake signals or anything else. Sometimes we actually want to look at the traffic noise, so right. that can be a source of, of, of information as well. But then we, we know when earthquakes occur and you can look at the timing of them oh, right. and, and yeah. determine.
0: Did you pick wrong. up the big explosion with the Tonga volcano? Did... Um,
2: yes, but yeah. we're trying to trying to kind of um, get the details out of it, right. but yes, it the that... Experiment was was running. Wow!
0: Yeah, because yeah, that's that's something I think that there's a, there's so much excitement around that. I mean, yeah. not not for the people nearby, of course, it was a disaster. But in terms of like a worldwide event like that, we don't see that very often. No,
2: it's a once in a lifetime yeah. thing that we have a volcano that that's big that that is that large and is, um, yeah, we've never had recordings yeah. of that yeah, before. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's incredible. <laughs> now the so you you grab all this data, all this seismic data, and you've got it from all over the world and seismologists. So these are placed in strategic positions and in schools and wherever else. So you've got all this data. How on earth do you then – there's a bum – how on earth do you go and then image the interior of the planet from that data? How does that work?
2: So it's very much like medical imaging. So a CAT scan or MRI, when you go and get your knee you know, imaged, um, we use the same sort of technology. But in right. um, the case for medical imaging, they have X-rays for example, um, and they have the, have the sensors um, and also where the x-rays are coming from, all are very, are known, right? So they know exactly yep. where they're going. So you can get a beautiful image. Um, but in er- for seismology, um, earthquakes are the source rather than X-rays, and so we have seismic waves that travel through mm. the interior of the Earth, and then we have the seismometers, which are the recording devices, and so we do um, an inversion to image what the structure structure looks like, and so where the seismic waves travel faster or slower relative to a general Model of the Earth, and that's how we create images. So,
0: is there a is there a type of earthquake that's like better for that? Because you know, when they put out an earthquake alert, they'll say it happened here and it was at this depth and and this magnitude. Is there a, is there a particular sort of depth and and strength that it depends it on what
2: your target is. But mm. for um, like for subduction zones and also for imaging um, the continental interiors, actually having a very deep earthquake yep. um, are are critical um, because they they can occur down to about seven hundred kilometers depth. And so you don't get as much of um, surface waves and these different signals that happen when you have an earthquake that occurs very close to the surface. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got a
1: wave that's moving from that deep, like from a long way away, presumably it's moving through different kinds of material. Do these waves refract do you have to counter for changes mm. in
2: matter exactly so this is that's exactly it and how we get these different layer infer where the different layers and different structures uh-huh. in the interior of the earth are exactly where knowing where they reflect where they refract um, where they diffract and so mm. we can look at the individual little wiggles that like how you see on the pa- piece of paper um, <laughs> for the for the seismometer and you can look at the shape of them and the amplitude and the polarity and all of that stuff and so knowing how the wave is actually, um, travel through the Earth, and you can get these little details about the Earth structure just by looking at the the shape of the of the waveform.
0: That's pretty yeah. cool. And there are different types of waves, aren't there? Um, that you detect. I remember there being a couple of different specific types that travel in different ways. That's right. The so waves themselves. Yeah. Not, so not there's two
2: general classification so there's body waves um, and so there's those are the ones that travel through the body of the earth right. and then there's surface waves that travel along the um, surface of the earth and um for the body waves we have a p wave so primary wave and it's a compressional wave so it's very much like a sound wave yep. um yep. and then we have s wave which is a shear wave um, and so that mm. and so we have those two different wa- two different ones and because of the d- physical properties of the rocks we can then infer the velocity and how that all works so we can yeah. invert back and forth
0: i think it's interesting like when, when I hear all this I, I, it reminds me of just how deeply mathematical some of this work is because we we sort of you you will see pictures of this in books and so forth not very simple you know it's all very simple but I mean this is some really hardcore math to work this out isn't it
2: yep and it's uh, it's based on ap- optics so you're right, you see, yeah. um and so yeah I i loved optics when I was an undergrad and so this is kind of a you know, I guess a natural uh, progression of how I ended up doing this, but yeah, it is based Mm -hmm. upon, um, upon fundamental property or fundamental um, studies in physics
0: yeah now how are we going in t- in terms of sort of education programs in that in this area because I, I remember when I came through and you know I had to make a choice between subjects at university um, this, none of this was really covered much in high school there wasn't very much of it at all and then earth sciences was a was a subject in first year but to do that I would have had to drop one of my main physics subjects so it wasn't wasn't really possible um, and what's the pathway now for people to come through into the geophysics space
2: yeah so it's it's Still, kind of the same. There's very little um, earth science in in high school in, in Australia mm-hmm. and also worldwide, more or less. Um, so sometimes we cover it, call it a discovery subject or a discovery right, yeah, pathway, yeah. where you you take a earth science class maybe in your first year and you find figure out that this is really interesting, and then you want to go on to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think one of the selling points of earth science is that for science students, and they're not sure what science they want to go in you can actually do any of them right so if you're Mm. interested in chemistry you can do geochemistry if you're interested in physics you can do all sorts of different types of um, geophysics if you're more interested in in biology you can do geobiology and it's very much an integration and multidisciplinary field um, in earth science in general yeah
0: now one question i have for you and i'm not sure if there's an answer to this yet but with, with climate change occurring, there seems to me, and this is maybe naive, uh, a redistribution of mass around the Earth. Is this going to affect any sort of tectonic structures or, you know, magma chambers that previously were covered in large amounts of ice in some of the northern countries and so forth? Are, are we going to see that?
2: Um so is it observed? Yes. Uh, yeah, think, yeah. um, maybe I'll answer it that way. So yeah, we can see that it can actually measure the re- um, redistribution of mass, just like you said. So right. as, as the polar ice caps are melting, we can detect that mostly with satellites. Um, and so you can see that mm-hmm. uh, where it's changing also in, in mountainous re- regions where there's... Um, again, the glaciers are melting or there's been a lot of rain, um, you can actually detect that as well. So you can see right. that there's more water in the subsurface. Yep, Yeah. Uh, yep.
0: and, and will that lead to, you know, one of the things I, I, I suppose I learned early on was that you know, there is this interaction between the crust and all of that and what's on the surface. So the amount of water, biology as well, you know, bacteria, all sorts of things are changing the structure of the earth in ways that we probably didn't even perceive of 100 years ago. Is it likely that will all shift as well as as things change?
2: Um, Yes, you can see the deformation of the crust, for Mm. example, but um, whether that's going to lead to more earthquakes, for example, is probably um, Hard uh, hard to... Quantify or 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 um, yeah, forecast. I guess, yeah, yeah. but so, but you can certainly see the deformation changes as there is mass distribution. That's a, I, ab- Absolutely true. I find that extraordinary.
0: So human beings yeah. have done so much damage that we're deforming the crust yeah. of yeah. the yeah. planet.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's let's yeah. d- take a moment. <laughs> yeah,
2: <yes. laughs> that's,
1: yeah,
0: that's mind-blowing stuff. I think that's that's incredible. Now um, before. Before you go, Megan, I just wanted to check. I've got a book at home that I grew up with. It was published in 1956, so long after Wagner and plate tectonics and some of these. And it taught me that mountains were made uh, according to what they called the shrinking apple model. <laughs> Do I need to keep this so, book?
2: So this is not before plate tectonics. Plate tectonics no. was in the 60s. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so yeah. it's that's why it doesn't have it in there is because yeah. pre- te- plate tectonics was um, – okay.
0: Sounded believable. Yeah. It sounded like a good a good idea at the time, but um, but yeah, it's just way
2: way out there. Yeah. 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 No, that's not uh, that's not how it works. <laughs> don't give it to the kids. <laughs> yeah, don't give it to the
0: kids. <laughs> okay, folks. So this shrinking Apple model, it's no good. Yeah, yeah,
1: adult consumption only.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and have you got have you got a favorite location around the earth in terms of tectonic activity like where where, you know where is what's sort of disneyland in terms of a size seismic sort of activity for for a geophysicist in terms of information
2: oh i think yeah well for many reasons, but also Italy. So southern yeah. southern Italy, uh, Mount Etna erupting Ooh, cont- right. constantly. Yeah. So there's subduction going on in the Mediterranean and Mount Etna is a result of, of subduction right. and all the earthquakes that you have um, around Italy. And then you get to go to Italy. Too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so
1: <kind> of, uh, <laughs> and we're back to junkies. Yeah.
0: Have, you, have, you, have you experienced a, a fairly high-end earthquake yourself?
2: Yes, yeah, so when I was in first year, so freshman um in college and university in Southern California and LA right, yeah. was a Northridge earthquake. So that was a 6.7, um, earthquake in 94. Oh yes. And so I was, was 18 that, uh, and that was a big,
1: uh, Was that
0: the one uh, where the freeways yes. collapsed in near Anaheim?
2: Um, not, not, not near Anaheim up, up to the North. So, um, in yeah. San Fernando Valley.
0: Interesting point. I was there at the same time. Oh really? Yep. Frightened the crap out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I was wow. from Australia. We don't get earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. was really uh, – I was in a building um, in a hotel and, you know, nothing you can do, like 10th floor kind of stuff, and was really quite – yeah.
2: It wakes you up and, yeah, oh, it was yeah. pretty scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I scary. was there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, uh, so first year lectures and uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> big earthquake. Megan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank You'd you very much. certainly be welcome back if you head back down to Melbourne at some stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure you will. Yep, I will. There's nothing to do in Canberra. Sorry, yeah. uh, I'm not going to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. No, there's a couple of good. There's some good restaurants in Canberra, but um, and apparently there's some politicians in Canberra which you can bump into. Just like never (laughs) mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's great to hear about this stuff. We don't have enough geophysics um, on the show um, because, as you say, um, you guys are few and far between, and um, it's it's just good to to talk to someone. So. We will chat to you again sometime in the future. Okay, thanks very much. Folks, that was Professor Megan Miller from the Research School of Physical Sciences at the Australian National University in Canberra.
2: This is a podcast from
0: Triple
1: R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au
2: to find out how.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein at GoGo. We are having a bit of fun here today, me and Chris K.P. We've got some great guests in. And the second one is Dr. Elena Kefalianos, who is the course coordinator and senior lecturer of speech pathology at the University of Melbourne and holds me million other titles. Been on the show before. Welcome back, Elena. Thank you for having me back. It is great to have you back. Now, you work in the area of stuttering. So from a clinical perspective, tell us what exactly does that sort of Sort of label mean what? What do we mean by stuttering?
3: So people who stutter, um, it's a disorder of fluency or of the mm-hmm. flow of speech. Yep. Um, and so uh, when someone's stuttering, it's that they're experiencing different types of repetitions in their speech, um, or stretching out sounds, or in some instances trying to speak and actually nothing is coming out right. for up to you know thirty seconds.
0: Right. And what's the source of that? particular problem?
3: So... We actually still don't know exactly what the source of the problem okay. is. Um, we do know that there um that, that it is underpinned by some sort of um, neural processing deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of establishing the exact nature of that, there is still lots of research that needs to be done to right. pinpoint the cause. Right.
0: Is it something that you have throughout life, or is it something that you have a very good chance of you know moving beyond?
3: Um, Either. So um, it's a very, very common um, disorder in preschool children. So one in 10 children will stutter at some point um, as preschool children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But then recovery rates are really high. So around 70% of kids who start stuttering um, will eventually recover from stuttering. Mm -hmm. But then that means that the other, you know, one in four children or one in five children will persist with it um, into their school years and potentially for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And so as a
0: speech pathologist, what what do you do to try and sort of help them overcome this? Like what's the, you know, what's the sort of clinical interaction, you know, like in, in psychology, I guess we have, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. you have all different things. I mean, what, what does that look like in a speech pathology sense?
3: So it looks, your goals are different at, with different age groups. Mm-hmm. So with a preschool child, you um, You know, your primary goal would be to treat that child to give them the best chance of recovering from stuttering, of achieving minimal or no stuttering at all. Um, And then when you are working with school-age kids, um, you're still aiming for that ideally, um, but the likelihood of that is gradually diminishing as they're getting older. Right. And so then um, it starts to become a lot more complex in the school years as well. So you're starting to need to navigate things with these kids like the social impact that the stuttering is having on them or the emotional or the psychological impact Mm. that the stuttering is having on them. And so that obviously needs to be reflected in the type of intervention that you're doing with these kids as well then.
1: Yeah. When when a kid or anyone uh, presents with stuttering... Before there's any kind of um, clinical work done or anything else at, at all, if there wasn't, would it get worse or is how it presents, you know, that's that's what it's going to be, good or bad, um, or does it actually, you know, left to its own devices, for want of a better phrase? Mm. Would it deteriorate?
3: Very good question. Um, so it's not a condition that would gradually deteriorate or become stronger over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would eventually reach a point where a person's experience the strongest stuttering they're going to experience, but it's, it just presents very differently in individuals. Right. So there are just as many presentations of stuttering as there are people who stutter. Right. Um, so for some people it will be that it's um, it can be quite constant and then for others it can be incredibly variable mm. day-to-day situation mm. to situation.
0: Mm. And, Elena, when you, um, when you have someone who is, you know, stuttering for quite a while how does it affect other elements of their life do we do we see the impact being pretty severe there in terms of their their mental health their sort of engagement with education what what other things sort of get pulled into
3: the mix it can be um so Some people um, are not affected at all by their Mm -hmm. stuttering, which is wonderful, Um, and they they go on to live very happy, fulfilled lives. Um, And then for other people, it can impact them really significantly. So the likelihood of um, things like social anxiety disorder, generalised anxiety disorder are extremely high. Right. and those sorts of, we see the early, you can see the early signs of um, anxiety emerge even from the preschool years, but it's once people really hit, you know, primary school that those sorts of things really start to rear mm. more strongly. Mm. Um, and so then that can have impacts on these kids um, in the school setting because, you know, you're asked to participate in group discussions. You're asked to, you know, you're required to put your hand up and ask a question in class if you've not understood what the teacher said to you. Um, the playground. Yep. Is yeah. um is also a significantly impacted area potentially, so it can be a really lonely place sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, I bet. I, so I, I remember when I um did my first sort of presentation as a, as a as a kid, and I think I was like twenty three or something. You're <laughs> like like back. Back then, you didn't do a lot of that sort of stuff. My, my kids are ripping out PowerPoint presentations yeah, yeah. every five minutes. Is that, I mean, that that environment has changed quite a lot. Has it gotten harder for, for kids who stutter as a result of that need to be on show all the time and, and to, you know, have that sort of version of, of how to communicate that everyone expects?
3: Yeah, I think there is an increasing um, expectation and pressure. Just generally in terms of how you present, and particularly in terms of communication skills, mm-hmm. um, and so there are a lot of um, incorrect assumptions that are made about people who stutter simply because they speak differently, yeah. um, simply by taking a little bit longer to say what they want to say. Otherwise, they're completely like you and I.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some. I'm interested because my immediate thought then was um, just following what Shane was saying that yes, that, that at a younger, younger age, people are asked to present things, but mm. not just asked to have the opportunity to. And I'm thinking yeah. TikTok, Facebook, you know, Instagram, mm. YouTube Live, etc., where there's an opportunity to. Do those things apply more pressure to someone who others to sort of try to to fit a, a narrow um, band of behaviour, or can, can they and have they ever been used as an opportunity to help?
3: Um, Absolutely. People have used social media platforms to try and raise awareness of stuttering. It was actually International Stuttering Awareness Day yesterday. Indeed. So very timely um, to be on today. But um, so, yeah, there's lots of, um, there are lots of wonderful people doing great things with social media to raise profiles um, Mm -hmm. around people who stutter and initiatives to raise um, people's education about how to interact with people who stutter because sometimes I think what people's instinct in those sorts of conversations is very misaligned with what the person who studies yeah. actually wants you yeah. to do mm-hmm.
0: it's 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 interesting to me because I think um I often have scenarios here on the show where when we have guests who have strong accents and English as mm. a second language, you know, there's all these apologies and all these, I'm like, mm. actually, you're the ones I love the most. Like you, you sound interesting. You sound amazing. And, and mm. often their diction is better than mine. <laughs> which mm. It's because I'm a Bogan from the Western suburbs, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like and but we've got this mindset around this being problematic. And I think mm. that's really like really troubling for, for, for me that, that, That's so pervasive. Now, one of the things I noticed that you're doing later is you're going to be holding next year Australia's first summer camp, Mm. in particular for people with stuttering. Tell us about that. It sounds really exciting.
3: It's amazing. Um, I'm very, very excited for it. So it's an initiative that's being run through the Stuttering Association for the Young Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation that was established a few years ago. Um, And so it's been designed basically to fill a big gaping hole um, in Australia, which is trying to connect young people who stutter with one another. Um, So this camp is going to be held in January next year. We've got kids coming from all over Australia um, and even actually New Zealand. Um, And so, uh, yeah, they're going to come together for a week of um, games, activities, connection with each other just to meet another kid, multiple children who stutter because... um, Unfortunately, without organisations like, say, Australia, that very, very often isn't the case.
0: I, I think that's amazing. I think you know, you and others will probably be there. You'll be the odd ones out. It's going, to, it's going to be it's going to yeah. be so unusual. Like these kids are all going to be able to engage in a way that feels totally normal and free to them. Yeah. And you're going to have to step it up. I'll be the one <laughs> that sounds different. You're going to sound different, and yeah. presumably, you know, they'll um, there's a. Is there subtle sort of communication things that come out in an environment? I'm not sure if this has been done before, but are you expecting different sorts of communication coming out in the kids that they, you normally wouldn't see in the school environment?
3: Absolutely. So um, we say already offers program creative arts programs throughout the year. Yep. Um, and so within those, we've seen huge changes in kids in terms of their um, communication skills, not in terms of their fluency, because we're not focused on, that's the beauty of, say, Australia, is we're not focused on how these kids, how these young people speak. Um, It's about creating a space for them where they feel safe and happy and confident to say Mm. the words they want to say. Mm. Mm. Um, So we're, and, and very much like you'll see, these young people come into our our theatres down at the Victorian College of the Arts, and their body language suggests that they don't have that confidence and they don't have that willingness to chat. And by the end of a session with meeting other young people who are in the same boat as them, they leave with their shoulders high, their heads high. It is such a beautiful thing to witness. So I'm very much expecting the same thing at this um, camp.
0: Yeah, how many kids do you think you're going to get along?
3: I don't. I don't know how many we're going to get along. I'm hoping for like around thirty odd, maybe that would be a beautiful. Wow. Start for the first one, and yeah. we're pretty close to that at the moment. Um, we're fast approaching that number, so hoping to hit it.
0: Yep, and whereabouts are you go? The camp. Yep, Creswick. Uh, Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that'd that'd be good. Mm. Well, look, I think, um, and can people still sign up for that or is it all locked in? So how would people get involved?
3: Yeah, so um, there is a few places left, I believe. So um, if you go onto the Say Australia website um, and there's a page or a a tab on there that takes you to the camp um, and you can um, submit an inquiry form there and one of the staff members will get back to you.
0: Wow. Well, Elena, look, it's great always talking to you about this stuff, I find that it's a, you know, because we do so much about communication here on the show yeah, and our yeah. whole show is about communication and, yeah. and different people do communicate in different ways. Yeah. And I think the idea that, you know, everything has to be fixed is kind of a real old way of thinking. Absolutely. And it's great to, um, it's great to hear about these things. And this camp just sounds oh. wild. So uh, I think uh, Chris yeah. and I probably love to go, but we wouldn't fit in. No, <laughs> We wouldn't <laughs> yes. fit. It's, um, and I really want to hear about how, um, how that goes. Cause I think, um, it will, it will give them such confidence and so forth. It sounds like a great program. Mm. Congrats on getting all that together and, and doing you. that work, and hopefully we will chat to you again sometime. And uh, I think last time it's been about five years, so we'll do it That's, sooner. Yes, we'll do it soon.
3: Sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. Thank you,
0: folks. That was Dr. Elena Kefalianos, uh from the University of Melbourne's Department of Audiology and Speech Pathology. I'm going to go off about what's happening at the bomb. Ultra. Oh, Sorry, the bureau. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Chris KP is going to teach us something cool.
1: Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app.
0: Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Just to would mentioned that before I start talking about the Bureau of Meteorology. I'm sure they'll be pleased that you said that correctly. <laughs> the Bureau. Uh, so I think, uh, look, I've watched too many episodes of X-Files. So when I hear the Bureau, I just think of Fox. When Mal- I, well, when I hear the Bureau, I
1: wonder what um, Bureau of statistics thinks. Like, <laughs> yeah. what about us, you know? What about uh, us? And there are others. Yeah. There
0: are others. So uh, if you haven't been um, keeping up to date, folks, uh, this, uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, as Australia has been, I'd like to say, sinking, literally, mm-hmm. with water everywhere, um, the the greater uh, comms kings at the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, the people in charge there decided they would launch this rebranding program. Um, one of the things, of course, they failed to recognize is that the, the term the bomb, which is what they're trying to do away with, is something that the public essentially, in my view, owns. Um, it is what the public calls the, the Bureau of Meteorology. And, of course, many people at the Bureau call it that as well. And it's mm. an, a term of affection. Mm. It is not a term of derision or anything else. And to turn around and tell everyone that they can't use that anymore well, specifically news agencies, but I think in general the the meaning there was that we will not we we shall not be called the bomb anymore. So it's um, it's not going to fly. Well,
1: I found that really interesting because when I was for most of my life, the bomb wasn't even a concept, as in the phrase mm. um, I, I would refer to. The Bureau of Meteorology was actually a thing that we said, or the Weather yeah. Bureau maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, or and, Rob Gel, or, yeah, or, or <laughs> that the, guy, yeah. without old. Yep. But then there was, yeah, and it was relatively recently that bomb as a concept turned up. Mm. And I think people did, people gravitated to it. it yeah, they loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Um, I, I know, I know that CSIRO is not infrequently called Cyro and yeah. most people in SIRO are totally cool with that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's okay. So I, I, I guess what you'd have to ask yourself, and this is what, to be fair, no one has really tried to do this, is that I've heard you've got to ask yourself if you are that worried about or bureau or any other term, mm. to what extent is that concern connected to the purposes of the agency? Yeah. yeah. And if the if it is, then let's hear it because that's totally legit. Yep. If it's not then maybe there are other things you could focus on.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, this is one of these things where we look and we, we hear about the costs of these things and, you know, there, there's been a multitude of articles in various papers mm-hmm. over the last few days and, and those costs range between, you know, $200,000 and $700,000. And, look, I don't like the idea of marketing firms being paid that to, you know, redo a logo and, and mm-hmm. some, and, and to be frank, to put out some, some comms that really is um, – A, not great in my view, Mm. and B, appallingly timed, appallingly timed. Mm. I mean, it is not for for the Bureau of Meteorology to be um, looking looking at this at a time when people are losing their homes and their livelihoods and, you know, half, half the country's in strife. That that being said, um, you know, you could say, well, when's a good time? Well, sure. definitely not now, um, but, <laughs> but the you know, they, they, you have to pick On your the, battles.
1: I don't know that they were actually – I think they were reacting. I, my, my impression is that someone yeah. asked a question and the, the, the relevant minister went, uh, actually, what? <laughs> and then it suddenly became a thing. Yeah. They had to respond yeah. to it. So, but I think you're right. But, but again, you look at the – I mean, the – the irony, of course, is that the app that they provide is bomb, called the bomb, yeah. and it says yeah. that in large letters on my phone. Yeah. and I look at it every day. Yeah, um, and yet that's been changed over time. That's an iterative app, as it should be. Yeah, and yet, and that costs lots of money as well. Yeah, but presumably that money is spent trying to make this a better service. Exactly. Yeah. So that's and, okay. And the, public,
0: and the public love that. And I actually think it's amazing, you know, because there are many more detailed. Um, apps. I won't say better, but more detailed apps mm-hmm. out there that you can you can some are free, some are you pay for. But overall, I think a lot of people use the Bomb app. And I mm. think I love it. This maybe more a Melbourne thing than across Australia. But if one of those rain radars goes down, people freak out. Oh yeah, like yeah. <laughs> there is such an affection for Bureau of Meteorology. And I think reading some of these newspapers and hearing about what appears, at least from these reports, to be an incredibly toxic culture within the management of the Bureau, Um, we've interacted with many Bureau staff over the years, over decades here on this show. Um, The meteorologists involved there are extraordinary. They do a really amazing job. Every now and then I I find myself defending them in the street where people say, oh, they got it wrong. I'm like, Mm. what, your seven-day forecast was a little out? <laughs> yeah. Come on, people! Yeah. Seven days—you're asking a yeah. bit much. And you know, in reality, they're like—they're doing an incredible job. So, so hearing about some of that, those cultural issues within a department that is, you know, it's it's paid by the taxpayer, is is very disturbing. So, I think from from Einstein and Goga, from us, I just wanted to say, you know, big a big, you know piece of support there to the staff in the Bureau who have been doing, you know, amazing work for a long period of time. A lot of their comms, frankly, has been amazing as well. Mm. And we've had many of the amazing yeah, yeah. communicators on the show over the years, like m- many of them. And and so, to me, there's been a bit of a misstep here, which has been retracted. Yeah. There is an opportunity now, I think, for them to, if the leadership is as toxic as the reports sound... Then, government should step in and deal with that decisively. Um, if it is not at the very least, you know listen to the people who understand the comms well, there are plenty of them, I think, within the bomb. And and put things out that demonstrate that this is for the public and that the public uh, uh, a program that the public are incredibly supportive of.
1: Yeah, and I would and I would encourage the public to keep doing that because you, you, you hear. Let's face it, the same old story. Bad news travels farther and yep. and longer than good news. And when you hear the horror stories, you you tune straight into them. But as you say, there are really good people there yep. doing really good stuff that we really like and yep. really depend upon. So don't lose sight of that goodness yep. Yep. just because something somewhere is sour or pointless or <laughs> odd.
0: Yeah. So we'll still be calling it the bomb, uh, because
1: the Bureau is oh. frankly confusing, uh, uh, but we weird. often refer to
0: this the Bureau of Meteorology in well, full. This is the weird thing. So, I, I, would,
1: I frequently refer to the Bureau of Meteorology, and yet now I feel like I don't want to. <laughs> now I feel like I want to twist it. Well,
0: line. I think it's interesting. I, I said the other day, I said they're, they're risking taking a term of affection, which was the bomb, <laughs> and turning it into a term of defiance, yeah. but you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm naive. And this was a masterstroke of strategy to heighten the sort of awareness of the the Bureau of Meteorology across Australia. But I suspect it is probably yet another one of these absolutely (laughs) garbage comms decisions where the right people weren't consulted. And instead, something went out that the rest of us just laughed at. So anyway, to all all the, the great people. Maybe not all of them, all the great people that work mm. at the bomb. A big cheerio from us here on Einstein. Yeah. Go, go. Uh, we love chatting to you. We think you're amazing. We think a lot of the comments you put out is brilliant. Sorry there's been this problem, and I hope it gets cleaned up real fast. On that note, Chris, over to you.
1: Uh, oh, thank you. Um, well, so I guess if I were to try and find a segue, it would be towards unintended consequences. Oh, there you go. Um, I suppose. But we are going back a lot further. Now, if you cast your mind back, uh, and not even you or I are old enough to do this with personal experience, you know, to the Black Death, mm. oh, yeah. um, that yeah. is the bubonic plague um, in, in the 14th century in Europe, cast your mind back to that. This is a bit of research that I, I stumbled upon a couple of days ago, and it's really interesting. So basically, to, to, to bring you up to speed, uh, this was a massive pandemic across Europe. Estimates suggest that, you know, 30 to 50% of the population was knocked out. Mm. In a few years. That's a lot. So yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it's you know, in, in like five or six years. So that's a lot of people being being uh, killed by a thing. Um Obviously, there was no mask mandates or lockdowns, so everyone was cool mm. with it. Mm. I have to assume. Yeah. Uh, and the bacteria that causes this, you know, was was eventually eventually was carried by fleas on rats. We, yep. we now know, yep. but there was all kinds of myths and, and misunderstandings about it. But the thing is, when a population is exposed to uh, a microbe, in this case, a bacterium, for a long period of time, yes, a lot of them get sick, and yes, in, sadly, a lot of them die. But some of them survive. Right. And the more exposed you are, the more you know people start you know the, the emergence or the the appearance of uh, of immunity starts to pop up mm. and yet we don 't really talk about that. the black Death is really about people dying it's not about people surviving, and yet people did yeah, and maybe it was luck maybe it was uh, maybe it was better hygiene, but eventually you know the, the the cases dropped, and people got out, and there were people who survived through that, and the people who survived through that because of genetic um, conditions, mm. survived, and had babies. Oh, So they've got some tolerance as well. Yeah. 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 So the good news is that you've passed on, to some extent, in that case, a um, uh, you know, a genetic advantage when it comes to the plague. Now this re- the research is interesting because it was basically looking at um, <laughs> you know, about 500 DNA samples of people who were around uh, you know up to and into the plague mm-hmm. and then a similar number who were there at the edge and then afterwards. So they're doing a comparative analysis over quite a long period of time, looking at what kinds of markers appear and what kinds of genes are carried, etc and looking at p- and some of the research was done looking at bodies in plague pits. This is unmarked graves. Oh, right, yeah. 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 So wow. it's pretty grim in its history. Anyway, so they go through all this stuff and they, did, they, did, they detect all manner of, um, of interesting genetics. What they found, though, is a connection. Now, the extent to which this is actually having a, a mechanical impact is uncertain at this point, I, I would argue. But they found a connection between genes for immunity against, or at least genes for better immunity against uh, plague yeah. and other autoimmune conditions. As in causing them. Right. So you may go, hey, the good news is I'm probably not going to get the plague. The bad news is I may have a higher likelihood of Crohn's disease. Right. Or lupin. <clears throat> um, and that is really interesting. Now, what is the mechanism and how does this happen and how, you know, and how likely is it to manifest? That's the uncertain bit, as it often is at the early point. But how intriguing is that? That's yeah. something from generations ago could still be in your genome and actually have a really obvious deleterious effect a long time later. Is
0: there a lesson in this for our current <laughs> times, do you think, Chris K.P.?
1: <laughs> well, a lesson in humility or a lesson in medicine? <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: it's one of those things, isn't it, where um, I think you know, that phrase, you know, the absence of evidence doesn't mean... The uh, evidence of absence, yeah, totally. And this is one of the things that's often forgotten at the moment. We're seeing, you know, a, a, a you know large scale virus spreading across the. Entire globe mm. and having all sorts of weird effects that we really, you know, anyone, I think anyone who tells you they understand them is sort of, I don't know, selling tickets to something that well, I, may not
1: happen. I remember the conversation we had with a guest um, some, some, I think a couple months ago now, um, where the connection being made to uh, COVID and the brain mm. and how, mm. you know, it, it doesn't seem good, but we don't know. And we may not know for decades or generations. Yeah. But you know, that's that's just a thing to put in your mind. Just remember this could be really bad <laughs> in ways that we have no way of really predicting or even thinking to predict, more importantly. That's yeah, that's the big question. This is not about I wonder if. This is about we're not wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting stuff. Yeah. It's um it-
0: it's a symptom, really, to me, of one of the biggest problems we have at the moment across medicine and healthcare. This idea that you know we have we have a, a decent understanding of certain things, mm. but you know a good example is antibiotics, and you know, we haven't seen many yeah. new antibiotics for a while. It's because we didn't make them. Yeah, we found them. Yeah, and they work, and that's great. But our understanding is relatively limited in terms of um, how to make new ones. I think the other aspect of that, of course, is around things that affect the brain and the way the brain works. That's difficult. But the one that really blows me away in terms of difficulty is the immune system. Yeah, We're just starting to learn how to tweak mm. it to fight cancer. We're just starting mm. to learn how to tweak it to turn off some of these autoimmune diseases which are problematic. And we have a virus running around that's doing all sorts of weird stuff to our yeah. immune systems. And that's one of the things that, for me, I think is, is more troubling than than anything else is that we're dealing with part of the body that is most complicated.
1: And, and, most, and, and okay. not just complicated as in numbers of bits, but mm. over the change in it. Yeah. Like at any yeah. moment. Oh, it's incredible. In a person is extraordinarily sort yeah. of four-dimensionally yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, changeable.
0: Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's something we have to uh aware of that mm. our our actual level of ignorance around this is fairly high. Mm. Our our level of knowledge is increasing at an incredible rate over mm. the last couple of decades. And I think cancer treatments in themselves have yeah. demonstrated yeah. the just the, the the pace of that. But yeah, we've got some problems we have to we have to think about very carefully. So anyway. Thank you, Chris KP. Good to have you in the studio again. Absolutely, my pleasure, man. Uh, third time's not. It's going to be too much for me. So you can take a break next week. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'll have to lie down, <laughs> folks. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go Go today, and a big thank you to our two guests, which were absolutely fabulous in the studio earlier. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we'll talk to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.